So this morning we are going to be still in Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 7 this time, and we're going to see these sealed servants of God. And we'll make it through the first eight verses this morning, and next week we'll finish up the chapter with the last nine. Now, if you were with us last week, you heard the question posed at the end of chapter six, and who is able to stand? And it's like God thought, you know, that is a really good question. I'm going to go ahead and tell him who is able to stand. So chapter seven shows us these two groups of people who can stand during the tribulation. And the first eight verses, which we'll focus on this morning, deal with these 144,000 sealed servants of God. The last nine verses of chapter seven deal with this group that we're terming the tribulation saints, those who have been saved out of the tribulation. And this is the same group that we saw in chapter six, crying out for vengeance from under the altar. And as far as I can tell, these are the only two groups who will experience the tribulation and still be able to stand. We'll look at it more next week, but you'll notice that these tribulation saints are standing in heaven. They're not standing on earth. And there's a reason for that, and you maybe can already pick out that reason. But we'll talk about that next week. Uh, Let's read through the first eight verses of chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. One hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, guess what? 12,000 were sealed. And there you have the sealed of Israel. And he specifies which tribes they would come from. Now, Revelation specifically, but also much of the Bible uses a particular style of writing that we're not really used to here in modern America. We're used to hearing stories straight through their timeline with the details of those stories packaged when they come. So a very linear type of storytelling method. But we see a slightly different style in Revelation and most of the Bible. It gives you a bird's eye view of events that take place, and then it takes you back to give you details 
through that time. And I believe that this is what we're seeing in chapter 7. And it's called a parenthetical chapter because it introduces, in effect, a brief pause in the idea and in the flow of events. It answers the question, who is able to stand? And it also gives us some more insight into these 144,000 and the great multitude who will be saved out of the tribulation. So verse 1, John says, after these things, and we've seen that phrase before, that's metatauta, and there's some question as to when exactly the events of chapter 7 will transpire, but most likely they happen during the first quarter of the tribulation. So in the seven-year tribulation, you have the halfway mark, the three and a half years. And that's when the abomination of desolations will occur. And then in the first half of the tribulation, you've got um, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And both of those series of judgments will come in the first three and a half years of this tribulation period. And so John, seeing this vision of the sealed of Israel and the tribulation saints, after the sixth seal is broken, um, that puts these events somewhere between the first and sixth seal being broken open. Uh, I think that is the best explanation for the timing of these events. Within that period, it really could be any time. I personally think it'll be earlier rather than later. So he says, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. That's an interesting picture. And Bible haters will stand back and say, hey, the Bible can't be true because the earth doesn't have four corners. The earth is spherical. And while that's partially true, while the earth is mostly spherical, it's actually been found that it's more elliptical. And it's also been found that certain mountain ranges kind of present four corners to the earth. Uh, and that's a more modern revelation that we've had in science. But you can look that up on your own time. But the common explanation to these four corners, and I would actually go a little bit more along with this, these four corners are explained as being the cardinal directions. And that really makes sense when you put it in with the fact that it's talking about four winds. These four angels are holding the four winds. And we usually think of winds as coming from one of the four cardinal directions. So I, I tend to think that that's probably more accurate a rendition. Holding the four winds of the earth. Um, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, in Scripture, winds are symbolic of judgment. And we see that. But I don't think that we should stop the interpretation at a symbolic level. I think that this probably does literally speak of winds as well as judgment. We see it's placed during these seal judgments, 
So certainly there is judgment all around it. Um, and that symbolism is still in play here. But chapter seven interrupts the flow of the seven seal judgments. And this, it says that the winds, assuming of judgment, are stayed temporarily. So God orders these angels to hold the winds, to not let them blow. Now, what would be the implication of no wind on the earth? What would that affect? Well, wind is extremely important in uh, distributing heat and moisture across the globe. So without wind, you would see the warm spots on the earth get really hot. And you would see the cool spots on earth get really cold because there's no way for that heat to be dissipated around the globe. Same with moisture. The rain would be less regulated. It would be going crazy. So winds actually are very important to our climates. Holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east this time, having the seal of the living God. And it seems that this angel is carrying the seal of God. I'm not sure what that looks like, but I bet it's pretty cool. Back in the Roman times and the readers of John's letter, his contemporaries would have been very familiar with this idea of a seal. You would package up your cargo to be shipped out and there would be a seal placed on it a little blob of wax, and then a signet ring or something to make an impression in that wax would have been pressed into it, and it would have been sealed as a guarantee that it would arrive at its destination. And it's kind of like one of those tamper-evident seals that we have on some of our modern goods. If you get a little you know, package of Advil, it has that foil under the lid. It's guaranteeing you that it hasn't been tampered with before it's gotten to you. Like a jar of peanut butter. You got to peel that extra layer off. It always gets in the way when I'm trying to get into a new jar. You got to peel that extra layer off and it tells you, hey, nobody's messed with this since it's been packaged. So this is a seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. So this angel who ascended from the east, who has the seal of God, cried out to the other angels, the other four who are holding back the winds of the earth. And he says, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Interesting, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until this event takes place. And this angel says, we, until we have sealed the servants of God, but he doesn't tell us who's with him. Evidently, it's not just him, but it's a company with him. We don't know who that is. Probably other angels, but it doesn't specify. But 
evidently this angel and whoever his company is have been sent with a very specific purpose. And that is to seal those Jews who would serve God through the tribulation. And don't be startled when you hear the term seal. You know, we think probably you think of the mark of the beast. You know, this is another type of mark. And we'll talk about the mark of the beast later on in our study of Revelation. But this term seal and mark, meaning roughly the same thing, is used throughout Scripture. And we see it way back in Genesis 4.15 when God marks Cain. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. So this mark guaranteed his his perseverance through anyone trying to kill him. It guaranteed his survival. And fast forward to the Passover. The Israelites had to mark their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. And this was so that the angel of death would pass over their house. It wouldn't kill their firstborn. And this is a kind of sealing or marking as well. We see again in Ezekiel now, the judgment of Jerusalem wasn't carried out until God had identified his own and they were spared. We can look at Ezekiel 9.4. And it's specific about how the Jews in this account were to be marked. It It specifies that they were to be marked on their forehead. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Ezekiel 9.4. They were to be marked or sealed on their foreheads, and they were spared from judgment. And this theme isn't only seen in the Old Testament either we see the sealing of us, of saints, in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1.13, the Holy Spirit acts to seal us until the redemption of the purchased possession. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this is where we fit in as Gentile believers. In this whole epic of history, this is where we fit in. We have been sealed, but we've been sealed for a different purpose than these Jews in Revelation will be. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, as we're told in Ephesians 4.30. 2 Corinthians one twenty two says that God has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You see, it's guaranteeing that we will arrive. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee or our down payment. Jesus himself says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, 
because God the Father has set his seal on him. So evidently Jesus was also sealed by the Father. And like I had mentioned, John's contemporary readers would have already understood this context of a seal. They would have had in their mind the king's signet ring being pressed into the wax and guaranteeing that cargo would reach its destination. Likewise, we have been sealed into the body of Christ as believers until the day of redemption. We've been guaranteed that we will reach that destination. This is a different purpose and a different destination than these 144,000. These sealed Israelites have been sealed through the tribulation. And they are to be a sign to those in the tribulation of God's power and, quite frankly, just his presence in the situation. Because if you think about it, this will be such a horrific scene. The judgment, the wrath of God being poured out onto the earth, there will be many who cannot see God in the process. They will think that he has just abandoned mankind, that he's not around anymore. He's moved on to something else. But these 144,000 who will not be harmed through the tribulation with God's seal on their foreheads, they are a testimony to the rest of the world that God is still in control and he has a purpose through this tribulation. I think that's one of their main purposes here. Their other big purpose is evangelism. These guys will be master evangelists, and they will see many, many multitudes of people being saved through the tribulation. Now, you probably also recalled this mark of the beast as we're talking about this mark in the forehead of the servants. Um, That is very obviously a perversion of Satan. And we see him do it throughout history and throughout the scripture. But Satan will always take these things of God and twist them to fit his own purpose, his own will. And this mark of the beast is no doubt one of those perversions. In Revelation 13, 16, we're told that the second beast which is the false prophet, will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And this mark will denote ownership by the beast. And it's just as this mark on God's chosen servants denote ownership by God. They belong to their master. And in the tribulation, more than ever before in history, sides will be deliberately and overtly chosen. Everyone will be able to see whose side you're on. If you have the mark of the beast, you belong to him. These sealed of Israel, they have the mark of God. They belong to him. And everyone else who hasn't chosen yet, well, they will inevitably choose a side. They have to. 
It's easy today to get lulled into what we think is a gray area. You know, sometimes we're content to dwell in what I'll call the gray. We're not on fire. We, we tend to sit back. We slink into church and just sit through the service. And then we leave and we live however we want. That is living in the gray. And to be honest with you, the gray only exists in the minds of those who want to be there. It's not a real place. There are only two sides. And there's a very sharp, thin line drawn in the middle of those two sides. And it's easier to kind of pull the wool over our own eyes today. You know, not really come to this realization. It's easier to do that because we don't have visible marks on ourselves as to who we belong to. But during this time of tribulation, there will be no hiding behind a a thinly veiled gray area. You You either choose to live your life and more than likely die for the cause of Christ, or you choose to take the mark of the beast. You have to choose a master. And that's very descriptive and very instructive for us today because nothing has actually changed there. Only the overt display of choosing sides because we still have to choose sides today. In John's first epistle, he gives us a potent illustration of this incongruity of words and actions. In 1 John 1, 6, and 7, he writes, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's no curtain to hide behind in the tribulation. And there's no curtain to hide behind in the eyes of God Almighty. It'll be a very polarizing time for humanity. And choosing Jesus, quite frankly, means losing your life. But you know, the one thing that will come of all of this is that that problem that the Laodiceans had with being lukewarm, that'll pretty much go away. Because you'll either have to be fully committed or fully uncommitted. And there's nowhere to hide. Last week, I asked you where you stand in relation to God's wrath. This week, I want you to consider something else. I want you to consider if your conduct lines up with your professed faith in Christ. Are you a talkie-talkie or a walkie-talkie? We want to be walkie-talkies. There's no gray area. Even this morning, we have a choice to make. You have that one big choice. You know, do I follow Christ? And if you've already made that choice and you said, yes, I follow Christ, 
then every day you wake up, you have to choose to live in the spirit, not live in the flesh. And that is always going to be a choice. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, people try to come up with all sorts of fanciful ideas as to who these 144,000 are. And they do it on who knows what basis, because it literally tells us in the black and white text who these guys are. Of all the tribes of the children of Israel, they are Jews. And there's a certain non-Christian group that teaches that the kingdom of God is now and that they are the 144,000 who were sealed to spread the quote-unquote gospel. And the very first question I would have for them is, oh, that's cool. What tribe are you from? And they won't be able to give you a satisfactory answer because they're not Jews. They think that they've superseded the Jews, and they tend to disregard this passage in Revelation. The identity of these 144,000 is unmistakable. And as if it wasn't clear enough by saying that they were from all the tribes of the children of Israel, the Holy Spirit listed out each of the tribes and specified that there were 12,000 sealed from each of those 12 tribes. And this doesn't call for symbolic interpretation, but literal. And to be quite honest with you, I don't want to be one of these 144,000 who are destined to live through the tribulation. That's not where I want to be. They'll have to live through some intense, intense times. And though they will be protected from judgment, they will have to witness and live through a lot of horrific things. And I would rather be sealed unto the day of redemption. And this morning, we have the opportunity to accept Christ, if we haven't before. And we have the opportunity to be post-stamped, to be marked, sealed for the day of redemption. And we can be with Christ in glory when all of this mess on earth is taking place. And that sounds a lot better to me than being one of these 144,000 anyways. Now, verses 5 through 8 list out the tribes, and they list out the fact that 12,000 were sealed in each of these tribes. So we look at this list, and yes, there are 12 tribes of Israel listed here. But if you look at the other 29 times that the tribes of Israel are listed in the Bible, you'll find some 
slight differences between them. There are, in effect, 14 different tribal distinctions that are used um, for Israel. It can be divided into basically 14 parts. Now, I've got a list of them for you, and we'll go through them together. You've got Judah, okay, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Joseph, and the two tribes that come from Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. And if you remember back in Genesis 48, Jacob, who was called Israel at the time, blesses Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph, above Manasseh, the older son. And so Manasseh and Ephraim both are under the tribe of Joseph, but they can be separated into their specific tribes. And you can use that to work in different tribes in and out of lists. Okay. And we see that there are slightly different tribal distinctions drawn throughout the 29 lists in the Bible. Now, in this list, we see that the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Ephraim are left out. But I want you to notice got my laser pointer this morning. So Dan and Ephraim are left out, but Ephraim is still included in the list under the tribe of Joseph. Joseph is listed in our list. So Ephraim is left out by name, but in actuality, it is still included. And I'll show you why Dan is left out, and why the name of Ephraim is left out as well. And these are, I want to preface, these explanations for why these two tribes are left out is partially conjecture, but I think that it makes sense. So do your own homework. If you come to the same conclusion that I do, rock on. If not, let me know what you come up with. So we'll start with Dan. The major view set forth by commentators has to do with the idolatry of Dan. And we know that idolatry from Deuteronomy is grounds for having your name blotted out. That's what it says. Uh, That's Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 21. So let's venture there. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. And we'll read through this real quick. In verse 18, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. And now listen, the Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. 
and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Do you see that? His jealousy would burn against that man and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. And then in verse 21, it says, and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity. That's an interesting choice of words. He'll separate him from the tribes of Israel and for adversity. If there's a word that describes this period of tribulation, I think adversity does it pretty well. Separate him for adversity. So Dan is not included in the list. And they were the ones by which idolatry entered the land. You can reference Leviticus 24, 10 through 16, Judges 18, verses 1, 2, 30, and 31. And it seems that throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit has it out for the tribe of Dan. If you notice, a lot of these prophecies that they get, they seem to get the short end of the stick on. And I'll let you trace those through. Dan was a leader in apostasy under King Jeroboam. If you look at 1 Kings 12, 28 through 30, and then again in 2 Kings 10, 29, we see that Dan is leading this idolatry. Um, in the Hebrew sense of the words, they're called the voice of calamity in Jeremiah 4.14 and Amos 8.14. They are idolaters and their name is to be blotted out. And yet, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. We have another list in Genesis 49.16. Dan is included um, as one of the judges of the people of the tribes of Israel. And Dan inherits in the millennium. We can reference Ezekiel 48, 1. And so I would present to you the possibility that Dan is left out of this list of the sealed of Israel, protected from the tribulation, because of the idolatrous practices that they had introduced into the camp of Israel. And that's why they're left out. Now, they will evidently be put through the tribulation, just not as one of these sealed. Because they will inherit in the millennium. So they'll still be around, at least a part of them will be around at the end of the tribulation. They're just not protected. Now, Ephraim, I've got a map for you, and we'll talk about Ephraim. Ephraim is included in the list, as I said, in a roundabout way, but not by name. The tribe of Joseph includes both Manasseh and Ephraim, because they were both sons of his. And Ephraim is also associated with Jeroboam's idolatry, the same instance that you'll find uh, in that 
passage in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Hosea 4.17 says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. And remember in 1 Kings, let's look at 1 Kings 12.29. It says, and he set up one in Bethel and the other he put up in Dan. This is talking about golden calves, idols. So we see that one, um, this is the sin of Jeroboam in introducing idolatry. Dan was a leader and Ephraim was a leader. Bethel is right there at basically the southernmost point of this northern kingdom. So this is a map of when the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern and southern. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. You'll see that these two places where the golden calves were placed sort of bracket the northern kingdom. Here is Dan up at the top, a very northern tip. So that's your northern bracket. And here is Bethel, where the other golden calf was placed, as your southern bracket. The northern kingdom fell because of their idolatry. It it was a defining characteristic for the northern kingdom. These calves are very overtly symbols of idolatry in these places. And Dan was a city in the area where the Danites resided. So we see Dan up here. That's actually a city, but the people of the tribe of Dan would live around here as well. Bethel is where Ephraim would have resided, and it's a city there. So we can see how these calves would have not made God very happy, and that is probably why they're left out of the list. Again, I'll reiterate, this is kind of the best educated guess that we have on this. So do your homework, and let me know if you come up with something different. Now, these tribes, some people will say these tribes are lost, or there are lost tribes of Israel. There aren't any lost tribes of Israel. There have been attempts to make different modern-day nations into lost tribes of Israel. That's silly. And they'll take someone like the Danish, Dan-ish. They'll say those are the Danites. They'll take the British, the Finnish, and Chuck Smith said the foolish. But the tribes of Israel are not lost at all. Sure, they're not all in Israel right now, but God certainly knows where each one of his people are. He has not lost his people, and in fact, I believe that God has deliberately placed these future sealed servants in different parts of the world strategically. He's placed some in positions of leadership, placed some in positions of servitude and 
some everywhere in between. And I'm sure that they're in every part of the globe. And whether they know it or not, they're waiting for this time and for their purpose. When they're sealed, they've been strategically placed in order to evangelize. And some will argue that no one knows who is of which tribe anymore. And that's actually pretty accurate. There's some nuance to that. But when King Herod heard about the Messiah being born, Jesus being born, and the Magi came to him, King Herod said, y'all go. Y'all find him and report back to me where you find him so I can go and worship him. Well, we, we all know that on this side of history that that wasn't his intent at all. He wanted to kill this new king of kings. But besides killing all of the males in that area, he also destroyed genealogies. And this is interesting because no one after Christ can prove that they are of the line of David, which is a requirement to be the Messiah. Jesus can prove, we see genealogies in Matthew and in other places, Jesus can prove that he is of the lineage of David, but no one after Jesus can do that because the genealogies were destroyed. So anyways, back to our stuff. No one really does know what tribe they're from anymore. But I'm so thankful that we don't have to know. You know, nobody nobody on the earth has to know what tribe you're from or, you know, who your ancestors are. But I mean, we look at these tools that we can use to figure out our ancestry. We can send a little sample of DNA into a lab. They can tell us from what country we originated. You know, if we can do that, with our DNA, how much more does God know where we're from? And I don't know if any of us here this morning, probably not, we're probably not Jewish. I know I'm not, but those who are Jewish have a shot at becoming one of these 144,000. If you're a Gentile, I'm sorry, but you have no chance. And I did say before, and I'll reiterate, I'm not really holding my breath for this. I don't want to be one of these sealed. I want to be sealed right now. I want you to imagine 144,000 Billy Grahams or 144,000 Apostle Pauls. These great evangelists with fervor. You know, Paul was a major catalyst for the gospel's reach in the first century. And that was the point in history when the gospel was most widespread. That is, until these 144,000 hit the ground and they take the gospel around the world again. Can you imagine 144,000 evangelists who aren't afraid of death 
going into a godless world and proclaiming the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will be a time of supernatural happenings. God says that he will pour out his spirit on the earth in the last days. You'll have people prophesying, dreaming dreams, seeing visions. I guarantee you that the tribulation is going to be an extremely supernatural period of history. And we'll get to some stuff later in Revelation that, quite frankly, blows my mind. We just don't have good words to put it in. There's some question as to what gospel these guys and gals will preach. But I don't think that that's really a valid question at all, because there is only one true gospel. Some people will say that these 144,000 are going around preaching the same gospel that John the Baptist preached. I don't really see how that fits in there, but they will be pointing to Jesus. That's the only way that it can be. There's only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, Paul uses many different names for the gospel. He says, my gospel, the gospel of grace, gospel of Christ, on and on. And then in Galatians 1, 8 and 9, he says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. There's, there's only one gospel. Even though there are many names for this gospel, gospel of grace, you know, on this side of history, we'll call it Paul's gospel referring to the gospel of grace, which refers to Christ. The gospel of Christ, the gospel of Jesus, it doesn't matter what you call it. The power of the gospel is real. And it will be miraculously and powerfully shown during this time of evangelism. And so the question isn't, am I one of the 144,000? That's not the question we need to be concerned with. The question for us this morning is, am I sealed today? Because there is a sealing that can happen to you this morning. And I would much rather be sealed now than have to experience the tribulation and be killed for my witness of Christ. Make no mistake, there will be many saved during the tribulation, but we, this morning, have the unique opportunity to be saved now and spared from the wrath. That sounds pretty good to me. I don't, I don't know about you. Has the Holy Spirit sealed you for the day of redemption? If you can say that that has happened. Rejoice. 
praise God for that because you've been sealed. But if you can't say that that sealing has already taken place, if you haven't yet asked Christ to come into your life, lead you, and be your Lord, come talk to me after service, and we can get that sorted out. And you have an opportunity to do that. You can be sealed when you leave here for your ultimate destination, for your arrival in heaven in glory with Christ. That is a good deal. We provide the sinner, he provides the savior, and that's all there is to it. Where do you stand in in regards to the wrath of God? And are you sealed today? Don't wait. Don't cross your fingers hoping that you can get out of the tribulation and going in the right direction. Because that's not a certainty like it can be this morning. Please pray with me as we close our study. Thank you.